Well, we are just going to jump in right away today because no matter how much I butter this up at the beginning, what we're going to talk about today is something that a lot of Christians wrestle with and even a lot of non-Christians find controversial. So I figured, why delay the inevitable? Let's just jump into it and start talking about it. So as we continue this series through the book of Nehemiah, which I'll talk more about in just a second, the topic today leads us to this word, repentance. And the reason why it's, it's such a difficult thing to talk about is because if you're a Christian, this word might bring a lot of guilt into your heart. Like, you know you should repent more often. It should be a regular part of your life. You know that you're taught to do it as a, as a child, maybe, if you grew up in church. And we're really good at repentance during the Lent season, right, right before Easter, right? Like, we're really good at it then. But just repentance can be something that's difficult, and we're going to talk about why. But some of you, just as we bring it up, you're a little bit uneasy. You're like, well, I don't know if I'm doing that like I should, and maybe this message is for other people in the room. If you wrestle with repentance, this message is for you. But especially if you're not a Christian, which I assume is a very small number of people listening today, but even if you're not a Christian, this topic is controversial for you. Because maybe your experience with this word looks more like this, repent, and you see it on a sandwich board of a guy who's preaching at a street corner saying, the end is near, you better repent or else. And you're left with this conclusion, well, how does he know who I am? And how does he know, who is he to say, that I should change my life? And so that whole idea of this uh, person, this Christian, or even this church speaking into your life is is filled with controversy, and you just don't like it at all. So it's a difficult subject to talk about. So, as we dig into this today, maybe just pausing for a moment to talk about, well, what is repentance? What's its definition? And it goes back to a Greek word used in the New Testament. This is the word that you find for John the Baptist, who we'll talk about in, in a little bit. Uh, but the word, the Greek word is metanoia. Metanoia. Metanoia, which is kind of fun to say. Try it at home in the shower. Metanoia. Metanoia. Um, it's basically two Greek words put together. Meta, which means change, and noia, which means noia. I'm kidding. Noia means mind. So change mind. Sometimes I just mess with you. Change mind. So repentance is a change of mind. Or in, in how we would probably say it in English, a change of heart. Where we were going one direction, but repentance is to change and go the other direction. Now doesn't that make sense then why this would be a difficult subject to dig into for Christians and a controversial one for non-Christians? How can you possibly dig into someone's heart and evoke a change that will happen? So maybe as we enter this discussion, what we're going to do is, like if anything difficult, rather than trying to front load this and teach you how to repent, how about we look towards the end goal? Like, what is the purpose of repentance? What is its goal? That's number one on your sheet. The goal of repentance is to align what you do with who you are. Align what you do with who you are. Because if what you do contradicts who you are, you will no longer be who you are. Let me give you an example. Uh, Perhaps some of you for a time in your life, or maybe right now, you consider yourself a runner. You run. 
You like to run. You wake up in the morning early just to run, and you enjoy it. Uh, for a lot of us, many of us, maybe that was in the past. Or fill it in with whatever exercise you wanted. You did yoga. You worked out, whatever it was. You did that in the past. And now as you look at yourself today, you think, I don't know if I could run a mile. And you think, well, how did I get from being a runner to this sedentary person who, who doesn't run anymore? The answer is you stopped doing what you were doing. Therefore, you became someone else. You know why you stopped running? Children. Work. Things came up that crowded your schedule, and you no longer had that open window that was so easy just to fill with something you enjoyed. You see, when you stop doing what it is that makes you who you are, then you become someone else. And when we apply that to a spiritual level, you can see why God is serious about repentance. He calls you his dearly loved child, washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he wants what you do to line up with that kind of who. But when what you do contradicts your identity as a child of God, then you are at risk for drifting away, maybe one step at a time, drifting away from that identity and forfeiting all that Jesus did for you. So repentance is that way that God keeps you aligned. What you do with who you are. As we go into Nehemiah chapter 9 today, you're going to see a remarkable section where one man helped lead an entire city in this act of repentance. And as we do so, we're going to find some very helpful things that we can apply to this day for how we should approach it, whether you're a Christian or not. So if, you've, if, if you haven't been with us yet, if this is your first week stepping in, uh, here's all you need to know in two sentences. They might be run-on sentences, but they're two sentences. Nehemiah was a man who lived in 450 B.C., and though he was a Jew, he was cupbearer to the king of Persia, which was somewhere between vice president and secret service. He was high up in the Persian government. And he had it on his heart to return 800 miles to Jerusalem, his, the, the, the capital city of his people, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and bring life to them again. So where we're at in the story by chapter 9, Nehemiah has made that journey with all the king's horses and all the king's men. He has assembled all the people in Jerusalem. They finished building the wall. And last week we saw that if those walls could speak, they would tell you this story, that the people in that city loved to listen to Scripture. They gathered around the Word. And that sets the stage for what we see today. We see an entire city just beginning to come to life. But before that can happen, there needs to be some repentance. Here's how it started. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, it says this. On the 24th day of that same month, if you were here last week, it was the same month that Ezra stood up to read the law to all the people from that high platform. So just 24 days later, that same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting, wearing sackcloth, and putting dust on their heads, which is totally unusual for us. If someone came in, they were wearing sackcloth, they had dust on their head, and if they were fasting, although you can't really see fasting, you would think, what is wrong with that person? Much like if they could see us today, they would say, why are they wearing high heels? High heels are so uncomfortable. Why do you wear them? 
I've never worn them, but I assume they're uncomfortable. Like, I hear they're uncomfortable. And they would say, why do you put makeup on? Why do you guys put this stuff in their hair to make it crinkly and stay in place if, if you have hair? Well, why, do, why do men shave their beards? This is just weird. See, they would look at us today and say, we're weird as much as they were. So when people in the Bible do this, it's basically like someone today posting a temporary Facebook profile picture to show which cause they're brokenhearted over. When they change their profile picture with that background, their heart is broken. Something needs to be fixed. When people did that back then, it was like going into work and saying, sorry, boss, I got to take some personal time off. I need to tend to some things at home. I'll be back in a week. They were saying, we need to stop everything to address something and to fix it. This is all in response to what they did last time. When they opened the scriptures and saw what was in it, they said, We need to fix something in our lives. Who we are is not lining up with what we're doing. Something's wrong. Verse 2, it goes on. The next step is that those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners. So what? That's like us in America saying we got a problem, so let's get all the white people together and figure it out. No. Back then, this is what this was communicating. And this this is, again, outside our, our culture. But what this would have meant for them is they would have said, we have a Jewish problem. You see, we are descendants of Abraham. And as such, we inherited this covenant that God placed on our people. This law of Moses governs who we are and what we do. This law does not govern those people. It doesn't govern them. It doesn't concern them. We can separate ourselves from them because this is our thing to work out. So they gather together to work this out. And and real quick, we can learn two things from that that I think we should continue to put into practice individually and as a church today. Number one, when it comes to repentance, it's about you, not about them. Repentance is about separating yourself from other people and just being with God to work out what he's concerned about with you. An eventual step of repentance might be reaching out to, that, to, to another person to, you know, build a bridge. But step one, the first step, is you and God. Separate. It's all about you. And the second thing we can learn about this is the Jews in Jerusalem, they didn't expect non-Jews to act like Jews. They didn't expect people outside their law to keep their law. And for us today, you know, if we're really a church that's, that's passionate about reaching people who are not in a church, maybe even people who aren't Christians, I don't think we should expect them to act like Christians if they don't know about Jesus. I don't think we should expect them to show the love of God if they don't know what the love of God is yet. So whether that's you reaching out to someone you know who maybe doesn't know about God, or if, if, if it's us creating environments for people to learn about God, We shouldn't expect them to be who they're not until God has time to work through his word. And as the Jews in Jerusalem gather together, that's what they recognize. We need to separate ourselves because we need to make a change, to make sure that our our lives and what we do aligns with who we are, who we are. And so they take this step, uh, chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 2. They stood up in their places and they confessed their sins, which makes total sense. God, I'm sorry. God, forgive me. But then it says that they confessed the sins of their ancestors, which seems, again, really unusual. 
And um, there's two things to keep in mind with that. When God dealt with the Jewish people before Jesus, he treated them as one. So if one person in the group did something bad, things were bad for the whole group. You look at some Old Testament stories of one guy who stole some things he wasn't supposed to. And now, as punishment, you know, the, the community has to get rid of him and his family and get them out so that things will be good with the whole. God treated them as a whole, and so as they think about the sins that their ancestors committed, they're held liable for that. So God treated them as a whole. But it's, it's kind of bigger than that, too, because what else we see from this chapter is that as you go on, it's not that they're asking God for forgiveness necessarily for these things. It's just that they're confessing them or acknowledging them. It, for us, it'd be like this. So God... I know I've got some things to work on. And I know that the pattern I had growing up was not the best. My ancestors were known for this. I was grown up with this unhealthy pattern of dealing with things. With this pattern that defies your will for my life. This was what I had to start with. And I recognize it. I know it's not healthy. And God, I need your help to break away from it. Just acknowledging it confessing it, knowing it's there is the first step to inviting God to bring a new pattern into your heart and into your life. They confess their sins and they confess the sins of their ancestors. And I'll tell you what, the more they read, the more they heard, the more they were convicted. Which brings up a point that is kind of obvious, but I think it's worth noting. It's number two on your sheet. You cannot repent of what you are not aware of. Duh. You can't apologize to someone if you don't know you offended them. But this is important to just pause at for a moment because if you're not aware of the things that need to line up with who you are, then you're always going to be at odds with who God wants you to be. These people, they took time to listen to this law of Moses and to soak it in and to, okay, we need to change this, we need to change that. The more they heard, the more they were aware of. And the more they were aware of, the more they wanted to repent and change. And the same is true for us today. I think this is the, maybe the thing about repentance that makes it so uncomfortable. We would rather stay ignorant. I don't want to have to change that. I don't want to, no, 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 don't you talk about that. Um, There's some things in, in your life, in my life, where we'd rather just drift on by. Let's not look at that over there. Let's just drift down this lazy river and pretend it's all okay. But I'll tell you what, when you let God or when you let another person in your life bring awareness to something that needs to change, there is only freedom. Only freedom. As these people continued, in uh, verse 3 as we'll see here, they're going to show you what it looks like to go through this process, to be more aware and then to respond accordingly. They stood where they were, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day, and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord, their God. And they set up a really important cycle here. They listen. They're being made aware of what's going on. They respond by confessing, Lord, this is what we've done. This is what our ancestors have done. And when they got to that point, they began to see something really amazing. You see, they were, 
listening to the story of their ancestors and how God was good. He created everything, but man was bad. And God was good. He made this promise with Abraham, but Abraham's descendants rejected him. And then God sent Moses to rescue the Israelites from Egypt, and they got freed, but then they rebelled and took on other gods. But God was good, and he brought them into this new land, and then the people rebelled. It was this up and down and up and down, but what the people realized was this. No matter how often people were bad, God was always good. No matter how unfaithful people became, became, God was always faithful to them. And so after they were made aware that they, their life was outside of who they were. And when they confessed that to God, they couldn't help but follow that up with worship. In spite of us, God is good. In spite of us, God is good. The heartbeat of repentance is that in spite of how bad I am, God is faithful and he is just. And that was their comfort that day. And it's a good cycle for us to continue even to this day. And the rest of the chapter really tells us how they did it. Uh, verse 5 goes on like this. So the Levites, um, they said, Everyone, stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And I encourage you this week, read the rest of this chapter. We didn't have time, didn't have uh, room to put it all in your uh, folder or up on the screen. But basically, the rest of this chapter takes you from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Old Testament, almost. So if you've ever struggled with, like, reading through the actual Old Testament history, you've got an amazing summary in the next 30 verses of Nehemiah chapter 9. It talks about God's goodness and people rebelling. But God's goodness, people rebelling. God's goodness to the point where they were left in the story with the present day. They praised God by telling his story, and they finally told all the story they could tell until it was current day. Like, our ancestors rebelled, now we're here, and this is our situation. And so, the, so God's story from the past now is the story that they're telling in the present. And in verse 36, this is how they fit into it. The people are still saying, but see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. This land which was designed to give us freedom and the land where we were supposed to thrive and glorify you is now a prison cell. They explain. Verse uh, 38. Because of something, we'll fill in the blank in a minute. Because of something, the abundance of its harvest, of this land, goes to the kings that you, God, have placed over us. The Persians. They rule over our bodies. As, I like how he puts these two together. Our bodies and our cattle as they please. It's like there's no difference from treating animals to the way they treat us. We're just things to manage, things to herd, things to keep under control. We are in great distress. And they leave this before God. We messed up. We're in distress. But in the process, they did not ask God for a single thing. It's interesting. See, usually at this point where you say, God, I'm in distress, usually there's a could you please attached to it. Could you please send someone? Could you please give us some relief? Could you please do this? Could you please do that? But there is no could you please in this section. You know why? Because they acknowledge that God owed them nothing. And no matter what they asked for, they knew that regardless of that, God was still good either way. 
God, what's going on today, they would say, is nothing different, nothing new. We've gone through this cycle before, but we know that you're good. So all we will do is reach out to you and say, God, we are in distress. And we know whatever you do with that, God, it will be good. It will be good. And the, th- the reason why we know that so well is because of what's in that blank up there. They said, the reason we're here is because of our sins. We don't blame it on our ancestors. We're not playing the victim card. We did this. We assume full responsibility. We are in distress because it's our fault. God have mercy. God do what you will. And in so doing, they had their hearts transformed in such a way that what they were going to do next would perfectly line up with who they were. They made this big change. Verse 38. So in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. um, And then chapter 10 details that agreement. We are going to put this down on paper because we don't want repentance to be some, we did it, now we're done, now we can go back to normal life. They wanted repentance to be a continual thing which would go with them into the future. They put it into writing, which was a big step. On top of that, they had all the signatures, all the seals, so that if someday someone would look at this, they would hold them accountable to this written agreement. They had it in their heart to change their life, not because that change would make them good with God or change their relationship with God. They wanted to make this change because of their relationship with God. They didn't want repentance to be something they just said, but they wanted it, wanted it to be genuine. And for us today, what we can learn from that is number three, authentic repentance is an ongoing practice. Number three on your sheets. Authentic repentance is an ongoing practice. It's not something that you just do once a week and then you go home and you say, all right, I'm good. I repented of my sins. I was forgiven. And I'll just go back to life as normal. That's repentance, but it is not authentic repentance. Authentic repentance requires strategic plans. Where you get real with God. It requires you to sit down and think, how can I be held accountable for this? What steps do I need to take today so that tomorrow what I do lines up with who God made me to be? And it's not like my performance or my ability to change is what makes my relationship with God good. No. It's because of my relationship with God that I want to make this change. I want to align with who he has made me to be. I want that because of him. Chapter 10 of Nehemiah, we're skipping in the series because this was th- that was their application of what they needed to change and how their do needed to align with their who. Um, for us, it's different because we're not under the law of Moses anymore. Jesus came and fulfilled all of that. that that's completed. Um, God sees all of you as having perfectly fulfilled all that covenant. It's finished. Jesus now made a new covenant based on his blood, his forgiveness. So for us today, well, what does it look like to have authentic repentance in an ongoing practice? Well, to do that, we have to turn to the next Nehemiah. Someone who had lived 450 years later, who, though he was one man, 
he would lead an entire nation in repentance. His name was John the Baptist. He did not dress like a prophet. He dressed like a wanderer, and he ate accordingly also. But as people came to him, he led them in the steps of repentance. And these steps give us tremendous insight into what it looks like to have authentic repentance to this day. And here's what he told people. As people came to him, they would say, John, John, we're here. What do we do? And some people would come to him and basically just look for this one-time repentance, like, John, can you just go through the thing and make us good and, you know, do your magic? And John said, that's not how it works. That's not authentic repentance. This is what he told those people. John the Baptist said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you have authentic repentance in your heart, it will be shown in what you do. Because what you do will be in line with who God says you are. And so the people were wondering, well, what does this mean? What should we do then, the crowd asked. If we have this repentance and we're in line with God, like what sort of miraculous things do we need to do in this life to demonstrate our alignment with God? Because surely we're going to move some mountains, right? Surely we're going to do some big cosmic stuff. We're going to come together and do some great things to prove that we're in alignment with God. And they had to be thinking through, well, what should we do? This is going to be complicated. And John, he's like, settle down, people, settle down. Here's what you do. Verse 11, John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share. What? So when my life and what I do is in alignment with God, with who God says I am, you're saying that I just need to share a shirt. Little simple. John's like, that's the point. And also, by the way, if, if the same thing goes with food, if you have two meals and your, your buddy has one, uh, none, why don't you take one of those meals and share with him so that he has some food? And they're like, but where's the fireworks? Where, where is it going to show that we're in alignment with God in what we do? And John said, it's, it's not that hard. It's not that hard. And so some other people came up. Tax collectors came to John, and they said, well, our case is kind of, you know, complicated. People hate us. How do we show that what we do is in line with who God says we are? And John told them, so you guys can take as much money as you want from people and keep the extra, right? And they're like, yeah. John's like, stop doing that. What else? No, that's it. Stop taking money that's not yours. Um, some soldiers came up to him. Yeah, but we're a different class. We're, you know, we're soldiers. We're in Rome. What, what, do, we, what do we do? And, and John's like, well, you, can, you have armor. You have weapons. You can basically do whatever you want, right? And they're like, yeah, right. He's like, stop doing that. Stop treating people just to get things out of them, but actually serve them and stop extorting things from them because you have the power to do so. When John guided people through this, this act of repentance, these fruits of repentance, it's not that anything was earth-shattering. It was just loving people like God has loved them. That's really what we should take away from that. If you ask John the Baptist, well, what, what should I do to show fruits of repentance? It's as simple as that. Loving people... As God has loved you. What should you do? Well, maybe, maybe it's you need to start taking that person's words and actions in the kindest possible way. And you might take a couple of arrows, but you know what? Maybe that's what you should do to show that you have been forgiven by God. Maybe it's that you stop talking about that other person behind their back. Or you stop letting others take them down. 
Maybe that's what you should do. It's nothing big, but it is big to your Father in heaven to love others as he has loved you. And here's where it all starts. This is so important. Here's where it all starts. This is exactly what Jesus did for you. You see, he had something that you didn't, and so he decided to give it to you. He spent his life earning and living the righteousness of God so that it was his. And this is what John noticed. When, when Jesus came to John, here's part of John's story. Jesus came to John one day, and what John was doing, he was taking bad people into the river, people whose lives were at odds with who God said they were, and he was bringing them in for this baptism of repentance. And from that day on, they said, okay, my, what I do is going to be in line with who God says I am. And then one day, Jesus shows up. And he'll never forget that day. John the Baptist said, when that day happened, anyone who witnessed it will never forget that when Jesus entered the water, something different happened. There was nothing in him that needed to be realigned. And that was witnessed and made, uh, made, made evident by the Father in heaven who looked down from heaven. Heavens opened up and said, this is my son. Who? My son with whom I am well pleased. The Son of God perfectly lived up to who he was. What he did revealed who he was. He was in perfect alignment with his Father, and yet his story would go on because what Jesus would do was he would throw himself out of alignment to push you into perfect alignment with God forever. His life and death and resurrection was for you push you out of death, to push you into perfect alignment with God so that by faith in him, God says to you, you are my son, my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. So what should I do? All I should do is give evidence that I've been given that new life. Number four on your sheet, fruits of repentance are simply a proof of life. That God has moved me into alignment given me the identity of his loved child, moved me to want to be aware of any way that what I do can contradict who I am so that through authentic repentance, I can show proof that he has given life to me. You have to imagine what kind of celebration God must throw in heaven every time a sinner repents. The angels must, I don't know what they do, but it says there's a party in heaven over every sinner who turns, every sinner who lines up with God because God has lined them up through Christ. What a celebration God does in heaven. And next week, we're going to see a celebration in Israel, in in Jerusalem, as these people celebrate life within the walls. And also next week, we're going to celebrate the walls that we're going to be putting up soon as a church and how God brings life to them through this simple yet profoundly deep meaning that comes through repentance.